Good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. It is true. I have never been to the Stearns Church. I feel bad about that. I was invited once a couple of years ago, and I had to cancel. Was it four? Thank you. I'm even all the more worried because Katrina is keeping uh, notes on this. <laughs> uh, Christine, I'm sorry. Anyway, yeah, it's uh, four years ago. I thought I could come. I couldn't, but good, good to be here. As you know, as I was driving uh, in this way, and of course, I've, I've been to Somerset. I've been to uh, this area, having been in my role for about nine and a half years. Uh, certainly eastern Kentucky, and true of most of the country, it's a mission field. And uh, you, you, know, you drive through the communities and you say to yourself, oh, that the uh, Lord would do a great work here in Whitley City and uh, in Somerset and in this part of the world. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, the work can be challenging when there's fewer of you. And uh, I was telling uh, Micah, I feel just a, a, a tad of disappointment that we're recruiting your head elder to come work for us. But uh, it's like if we invite the conference president somewhere, the next thing we'll hear is he's hiring somebody out of our congregation. So it's just coincidence. What would you say? It's uh, maybe, maybe not a good one. But we are looking forward to him uh, and his family joining us. Uh, at our Indian Creek camp, I don't think you told them, but maybe they all know, Indian Creek camp, you're going to be uh, one of our rangers there. Uh, how many of you have been to Indian Creek? Oh, good, most of you. Well, we have a beautiful camp about an hour and a half east of uh, Nashville, and, and it needs people on site year-round, 24-7. So they're going to join our, our team out there, and we're looking forward to that. But the Lord will have uh, others to uh, pick up the leadership role and continue to do good things in Stearns. Enjoyed just a little bit of time at uh, at the restaurant. In fact, as I was driving in, I saw that Huddle House, have you seen what Huddle House is offering? Brand new on the menu, fried Oreos. I thought, I'll bet those taste pretty good. But all the more reason for Christina's Kitchen. You've got to balance out the fried Oreos with uh, with some good healthy stuff. So, uh, again, yeah, thank you for having me. Glad it eventually worked out in my schedule and calendar. And uh, we're in a little bit of trouble if you're normally accustomed to ending at noon because we're about 10 after. 12 is really. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, then you're going to give me 20 minutes. That's going to be tight, too. Well, I want to promise all of you who like to eat, this should be about 30 minutes. It shouldn't, shouldn't be longer than that. Let's pray as I share. Lord, uh, certainly am mindful that uh, I am a sinner and in great need every day, every moment of your grace, your forgiving grace, your transforming grace. And so I pray to be robed in the righteousness of Christ, to stand before these good people and speak your word, capable only through your forgiveness and being used of by your spirit. So the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, may they be acceptable in your sight, I pray, our Lord and our Redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. It's, uh, it's the most popular exhibit in the world's most visited museum, and the guests who daily crowd the display areas in the British Museum would agree that there's one must-see exhibit. You don't want to leave the British Museum without seeing what at first would not be all that interesting because it's actually said very simply a big piece of rock. 
weighing a little over 1,700 pounds, this rock would, again, not perhaps even convince you that it's worth all that much. After all, Home Depot will sell you a piece of countertop granite for, oh, I don't know, $25, $30 a square foot, 40 or so dollars installed. But this black granite rock is different and very unusual. There's a reason why it's in the British Museum. And whatever the wallet-numbing dollar value of the rock, it's not the molecules that form the rock that are valuable. It's what's on the rock that counts. Carved in the second century BC, the three-language script on this stone became the means by which, before its discovery, knowing very little of it, it became the means by which we learned a lot about Egyptian hieroglyphics. In fact, before that stone's discovery, we knew almost nothing, and upon being able to uh, translate it, it was the key to unlocking what the Egyptian priests and monarchs called the language of the gods. The script on the rock simply describes the coronation of an Egyptian king, but because it was in three different languages, and our knowledge of the two languages helped us unlock the mysteries of the third language, which was hieroglyphics. So important was the discovery of this stone that it has a name. And since we've been quizzing people all day, Christine is probably going to know this, so she doesn't, she doesn't get to participate What do you think the name of this stone is? Exactly. The Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone. Now, as interesting as the stone itself is the less known story of how it was discovered when it was literally being used as a paving stone in the foundation of the old Egyptian Egyptian port city of Rosetta. So when it was discovered... It seems that an observant French officer who was part of Napoleon's army, who were expanding the fort and pushing out the walls, this French officer looked down and saw the inscription on the stone, and he said to himself, well, maybe it's worth something more than a paving brick for soldiers' boots to step on. And, of course, he was right. So the moral of the story is sometimes small, unnoticed things can be of a lot of value. I wonder if that's what the Pope was thinking when he visited this country a few years ago. And of course, that was a big media event. Uh, The major news networks followed him wherever he went from coast to coast. And of course, Seventh-day Adventists were very interested in what the Pope had to say. We're kind of the last vestiges of the Protestant reformers. And particularly as he stood before Congress, kind of listening to every word, But it was something he said when addressing an audience in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, that caught my attention that was kind of a small statement. I read it in USA Today. Now, I thought when I read this small statement about small things, I thought, now that's interesting. Here's what Pope Francis said. He said, holiness is often tied to little gestures. Holiness is often tied to little, little gestures. And as I read that, I thought, I wonder if his opinion on that matter was formed in any way by his reading of a book that I hope he spends a lot of time in called the Bible. Holiness is often tied to little gestures. Could there be some truth in that, particularly when we speak of spiritual things? Now, it's kind of an embarrassing self-admission, and maybe it doesn't apply to other people, but when I'm reading the Bible... 
I really like the big, exciting stories. I kind of move quickly past the begats and the begots and little trivia things. And so I like the big miracle narratives. I mean, uh, uh, God inflicting Egypt with the, with the plagues and through the powerful miracles, uh, releasing his people from all those centuries of bondage. And then, of course, dividing the Red Sea. Oh, that's a great story. That's what they make movies about in Hollywood delivering his people safely on the other side. And uh, then, of course, there's a big problem. This is a nation of, we think, as many as 600,000 or so people. What about water? What about food? Oh, no problem to God. So the water springs from desert rocks and sand, and the food drops out of the heavens, the manna. And uh, then there's a problem. They're going to have to travel a long ways. I don't think they know it. They're going to be 40 years in this hike through the wilderness. And even then, God provides Their sandals and their cloaks do not wear out. What a great story. And then who wouldn't have wanted to have been there? I mean, it would have made my pulse race to have stood at the base of Mount Sinai, ringed in smoke and fire, and there God delivers the Ten Commandments to Moses. Wow, that's that's great, great, exciting stuff. Oh, the stories of the Bible are filled with those kind of miracle narratives. I mean, we think of, uh, uh, of Elisha, who who, uh, with the, the uh, widow, the uh, poor widow, who uh, wasn't sure she had enough oil to make one more little batch of bread. Oh, God takes care of that. Gives her an endless supply. And then uh, Elijah, who the ravens feed. And then the chariot that swings low to take him home. I mean, that's what we make gospel songs out of, those stories. Swing low, sweet chariot. Wouldn't you like to have been there the day that, <clears throat> excuse me, Joshua stands upon uh, the mountain before him, uh, arrayed against the armies of Israel are the enemies of Israel. Oh, he needs the day to be a little longer. And so Scripture says in Joshua chapter 4, uh, I'll, I'll try to save time by not reading all the verses. Joshua 10, I'm sorry, verse 14. No day like it before or since, when the Lord heard the voice of a man and made the sun and the moon stand still, defeating the enemies of Israel. Wouldn't you like to have been there when the fire falls from heaven? Uh, upon the altars of Baal, uh, and uh, Elijah's there. I mean, these are exciting stories. And, and then the, the, the narratives about Jesus, all the things Jesus did. I mean, I don't get bored after reading a thousand times about healing the lame and giving sight back to the blind and resurrecting the dead from life. And though while it would have made our eyes fill with tears, wouldn't you like to have been there through those incredible events celebrated just a couple of weekends ago, uh, Passover and the, and the gift of Christ to all of us, the death on the cross when the graves crack open and the curtain in the temple is ripped in two. And I think the greatest miracle of all from the heart and the lips of that cold, callous, pagan Roman soldier, those words of worship, surely this man was the Son of God. I mean, aren't those great stories? I, I love those stories. And the Bible's full of them. But listen, if that's all that I get out of my Bible study, or that's all that I'm trying to model my life after, I'm missing something that in its smallness is really, really big. Well, how so? Jesus taught the importance of majoring in minors. Majoring in minors. So when Jesus defines the building blocks of the kingdom, when he speaks about the stuff of eternal life, when he tries to teach the disciples of that day, or we who are his disciples today, about the kingdom 
in that spiritual kingdom, in the real kingdom, he often speaks of little unnoticed things that would almost on face value seem to have very little uh, intrinsic worth to us, but that in the context of their small beginning would become something very, very big. So if you'd like to turn to Matthew 13, and we'll go through this kind of quickly, that chapter is full of illustrations of Jesus trying to teach how small things lead to a big thing. And so addressing that audience of that day that were largely an agrarian agricultural economy, so these are farmers and people accustomed to the field and and so forth, as you read that chapter, and again, we won't take time, but the very first uh, introductory verses speaks of a farmer going out, and I can envision him as he goes through his plowed field, and in his hands, he's got thousands of seeds, and he's tossing them left and right, maybe in front of him, and the Bible says that from those tiny little seeds, some of which will actually germinate, and eventually there will be a crop, others will not be so uh, advantageous to the farmer. But Jesus is making the point, from those tiny little seeds, that's what the kingdom arises from. If you look a little further into uh, Matthew 13, you'll discover uh, some verses further down, and uh, I don't have it open in front of me, but let me find it for you, is one of the most famous of all parables, verse 31. Bible says Jesus told him another parable, and then he speaks of the kingdom of heaven being like the tiniest of all seeds. Have any of you ever seen a mustard seed? I wanted to look at it because if you're going to preach it, it's kind of fun to see what it looks like. It's pretty small. Put a bunch of them on the tip of your index finger. And Jesus says the kingdom is like that, smallest of all seeds, but when it germinates, it becomes, when it becomes a tree, he actually uses the word tree, he says the birds of the nest will come. Uh, birds of the air will come and nest in its branches. He said, that's what the kingdom's like. Something small becoming something big and great. And then as you look a few verses beyond that, you'll see Jesus moves from the farm and the field into the kitchen. And there uh, Jesus likens the kingdom to being like a woman who's baking her bread and uh, she's putting a little yeast, leaven, into the dough, mixing that in, and I'm sure it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't take much, but as she mixes that yeast in to a large amount of flour, working it through the dough, oh, that's going to be one of the keys to making the turnout, what the baked product, something more than a tasteless cracker, but indeed a nice crusty loaf of bread that you can spread your peanut butter and jelly on and enjoy. So Jesus says that's what the kingdom's like, yeast, just a small thing, unnoticed. It works its way through the bigger hole And that's the key for the product to be what you intend it to be. If you look even further down, skipping a few verses down to verse 40, uh, 40, excuse me, well, let's touch on verse 44. Yeah, 44, Jesus illustrates the kingdom being like a man who discovers treasure hidden in a field. And in my mind, I mean, I think like a little partridge treasure box, (laughs) Maybe a small wooden chest buried in acres of field, maybe overgrown with weeds. The acreage maybe doesn't look all that attractive. But Jesus says the kingdom is like that. A man goes and sells everything, buys the field. The field doesn't interest him so much, but the treasure buried there does. Then a verse later, Jesus likens the kingdom to being like a pearl of great price. Again, a man sells everything in order to get that pearl, that pearl the size of a garden pea, a small marble, 
So as you, as you read through these verses and these passages, you'll find that the question is raised, is it possible, even likely, that something as priceless as the kingdom of God, as valuable as that, would arise from, oh, such very little things? Well, you know, this theme of uh, small things that become great seems to have been very important to Jesus. He uses that imagery, that analogy often, preaching about little things on face value of little importance, but in time have a great impact. So, more convincing? Luke 15. Again, uh, you can open the chapter if you'd like. I won't spend time reading those three very well-known stories, one told after another, a trio of stories about little things. The first one makes me think of the story you told earlier of the sheep. One sheep lost to the fold, one little woolly lamb, out of, 90, out, of a, out of a flock of 100, 99 are safe, but the shepherd risks life and limb to find that one sheep and bring him back. The next story Jesus tells in Luke 15 is of a woman who loses one little silver coin in her house. And so important to her that she lights lamps and she diligently sweeps the house. And when she finds that coin, why, it's a party. She calls the neighbors over to rejoice. Then the final story, the capstone story, is of the one lost son. One lost son. The father has other sons. And, of course, throughout his community, there are perhaps hundreds of sons. But, oh, that son is close to his heart. So daily he watches and scans the horizon and he's praying and hoping for the return of the one lost son. In other gospel stories, Jesus will speak of the sparrow that falls from the nest, but not outside the Father's compassionate gaze. He reminds us that the hairs of the human head, our very hairs of the human head, are all numbered. So what's he trying to tell us in this? What, what is he saying? What do these little illustrations mean? Well, wouldn't you assume that with these stories, the ones I just told, that on a planet that's straining to support about 8 billion people or so, I think Jesus is reminding us that every single person is important. And that itself is amazing. There are no people to be wasted. There's no such thing as a valueless life. They're all important. Every single one, no matter what nation, no matter what creed, no matter where they come from, every one of them priceless. It's the children's song we teach our kids in Sabbath school, Jesus Loves Me. This I know, we ought to sing it in worship, because it's a great song with a great story. And I can never hear that enough, that you and I matter to God. We matter to Him. But I think He's saying something else. Maybe to people like me. I mentioned earlier, I kind of like the big stories in the Bible, but people like me who may be a little tension deficit sometimes in the spiritual life. To we who are drawn to the big and to the spectacular, who, who like our, our faith and our, and our uh, spiritual life served up on, on, uh, on the stage of big and important things. If you're from Nashville, you think of the Grand Ole Opry and uh, what's the newest, what's the greatest? Uh, we've got to have everything uh, in front of us to keep our attention that's like supersized Happy Meals with dancing clowns and fireworks and falling confetti, and preferring that over the small and the simple and the unnoticed. Who, like cliff-diving thrill-seekers, have to daily look out over the edge of a, of a new, exhilarating new height, at least if we can't jump off and dive into uh, such a great new experience. But instead, we have to live our spiritual lives in the dirty, dusty trenches of life, where it can get a little boring, 
And it can be very challenging, and it feels the same. Well, I think Jesus is reminding us that those dirty, dusty trenches where we, where we live out our lives is the same place where he lived out his life. The point being this. Jesus knew what it was like to live a challenging life that was largely comprised of lots of little things. Nothing big, nothing spectacular. Oh, you read the gospel stories and you think, man, well, there, Jesus was always doing something big. <laughs> uh, taking a few loaves and fishes and feeding thousands of people, calling somebody back from death to life, touching and healing and calming, you know, telling the wind and the sea to be still, be quiet. Thought from his mind, he he commands hundreds of fish to swim into Peter's empty nets. He says a few words and he withers a fig tree. Oh, on and on and on. Those are stories we think about. But remember that Jesus' public ministry was about three and a half years. And if all that he ever did and all that he ever said was recorded, remember what the writer of John said, John the Apostle. If everything Jesus said was written down, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. So I have this theory, and it's this, that while we have the highlights in the gospel stories, the big things he did, and we've got the teachings that help us on our own walk to the kingdom, well, much of what Jesus did would not have maybe made the front headlines of the most popular uh, religious news of, of our day. So what did he do? Had some conversation with someone? Maybe tried to encourage somebody? Spent an extra minute and had a prayer for someone? Uh, I mean, think, think about some of the small things we know that are even record, recorded. Bending down and washing 12 pair of dirty disciples' feet. By the way, 11 plus the betrayer's feet. Welcoming into his into his circle, a giggling little group of children. The disciples are saying, I'll send them away. Jesus says, no, no, that, they're like the kingdom. Let them, let them come to me. A conversation late at night with one single person named Nicodemus. No reporters there, nobody there to take pictures. Oh, but where would we be without that one conversation? Kneeling in the dust in the heat of the day and with his finger writing a few words in the dirt while standing before him, trembling in fear, is the woman waiting to hear her verdict. Instead, she hears of his love and forgiveness and grace. So much of what Jesus did, I believe, that's not even in the stories of the, of the Scripture, many of them are, but remind us that he simply went about dispensing little spoonfuls of grace into his own dirty, angry, tired, desperate world. Tiny, small little things that were not even necessarily supernatural, but just little acts of kindness and love. Um, I started thinking about this sermon a, a few years ago, and it became kind of a personal journey for me. Uh, I had agreed to take a flight from Nashville to the West Coast, and it was an unexpected trip. I was going to be in support, going out there to be uh, physically in support of one of our pastors whose father had died. So it was a flight into Southern California. And when I boarded the flight that day, American Airlines, I think I looked like I was feeling. I looked very stressed. And uh, I look stressed even when I'm not stressed. It's just a curse of my family DNA. I mean, even in my line, even when we're happy, we don't look happy. So forgive me for that. But I didn't look happy that day, and I didn't feel happy. And maybe it was maybe one of the reasons the steward on American Airlines knew I didn't feel happy was uh, I had a book with me, and the title of it would have been very visible to him. I was sitting on the inside row, and the title of that book was A Balm 
B-A-L-M, in Gilead. You don't want to board a flight with a story that says a bomb in Gilead. They're going to escort you off. So, no, I had a bomb in Gilead. And the steward, a middle-aged man, a little older than I was, uh, I think may have noticed that. And so maybe, maybe that's why this happened. Uh, he had come by a moment before. We had reached cruising altitude, and that's when American Airlines wants to sell you some products. So they were advertising their $9 snack pack. And so in the snack pack, you're going to get some cheese wedges, cluster of grapes, box of juice, a cookie, some almonds for $9. I think, I don't, I'm not going to pay that. But then the guy across from me in the aisle, he actually got it, and he was enjoying it, eating it. I thought, well, that looks pretty good. I didn't think it would, but now I'm looking at that thinking, I want the snack pack. So I said to the steward, sir, I'd like to get the snack pack. I'll be with you in a moment. And so uh, a few minutes later, he came down the aisle, and he had the snack pack, and I had my credit card raised in my two fingers because it's cashless, they, and I never have cash anyway. So I had my credit card, and that's when he did what I didn't expect. And instead of uh, taking the credit card, he simply put his hand on my shoulder like this for a second, and he said, don't worry about it. And then he walked away. I thought, don't worry about it. Since when does American Airlines give you for free something that they're required to sell to you? Don't worry about it. I'll tell you, I felt suddenly a lot better. And, you know, you hear the story and you think, well, what a small story. So what? You save $9. I thought, well, you know, I'm kind of a cheap pastor. I don't mind saving $9. That felt good. But it was really more than that. It was, uh, it was an unexpected act of kindness when completely you didn't expect it, you didn't see it coming, and it felt like a little teaspoon of grace poured into uh, my little dark by my little dark world. And the cloud kind of laughed for a few minutes. Yeah, that was pretty nice. It was a few weeks later, and I'm standing in line at Kroger Marketplace, and uh, that's our grocery store there near where I live. And in front of me, there were two people in front of me. The first person in line was an older lady, I'm going to say well in her 70s, 80s, checking out. Then behind her and directly in front of me was a younger woman in an Army uniform, so I'm guessing an Army reservist. I don't have an Army base near where I live, so I'm thinking she's an Army reservist. The older lady bought her things and left. The Army reservist had her things on the uh, conveyor belt, and the clerk was getting ready to scan them, and she said, the clerk said to the Army reservist, she said, ma'am, the lady in front of you wanted you to have this. And she held up a $20 bill. Thank you for your service. And the Army Reservist shrugged and, oh, yeah, that's nice. Well, the lady who had left the $20 bill, she was out the door probably halfway through the parking lot getting ready to get in her car. Didn't even stay to be thanked. And I watched this unfold in front of me and I said to myself, well, that was nice. I could have done that. Such a small thing. doesn't take a lot of talent to leave somebody with $20. It takes a little teaspoonful of sacrifice, a little bit of interest in someone else. Yeah, you don't have to go to seminary and theology school to learn how to give someone $20. On the uh, corner of my desk in my office, there's a little collection of cards, thank you cards. And uh, a couple of them I've saved for a long time. One of them says something like this. It says, uh, Dear Elder Haley, thank you for believing in me. Thank you for trusting me. 
thank you for giving me a chance. You don't know what your friendship has meant to me. God has really blessed me through you. I'll never forget your kindness. And then, it's, then this person signs her name. Now, I, I tell you that not because what they said is true. They believe it's true. <laughs> so that's good. But the, my point is, is that I still have that card years after that person wrote that. And now and then, when I'm wondering whether there's anything I can do to bless others, whether my work for Jesus is really making any difference, whether uh, those moments of self-doubt, whether you're really equipped to live for the Lord, and you're wondering whether, oh, I don't know whether really anything I do is, is really doing what I would hope it would. I look at that card, and I think, wow, back then, two, three, this is more than years than that, I did something nice that day, and that person really appreciated it. Thank you, Lord. And you think of that, and you think, well, what's the big deal? Just a card. And it was. Probably took them, what, walked into a Christian bookstore, took three minutes to buy it, took about a minute and a half to write the note. Just a little thing. I guess the question is, do these little things really matter? Little things, do they really matter? You know, when I was growing up in the uh, pre-internet dinosaur days, I used to do something I think less done now, but as a kid I used to love to go get books and read them. Yeah, books with leather binding and pages. And so, and I would love to read biographies of great people that had done great things, and I think I'd love to be like that someday. So uh, George Washington or Douglas MacArthur or Robert Perry, discoverer of the North Pole, or, or George Washington Carver who rose from the ranks of slavery to become a great scientist. But over time, you move from childhood to high school. I'm worried about trying to pass geometry, find someone to date. Then you leave high school, and you're thinking, oh, should I go to college? What should I do for my life's work? Years go by. You may eventually meet someone. You get married, mortgages, kids. You know the drill, some of you. And uh, eventually, those dreams pass away. And I became very, uh, very cognizant, very clear in my mind. I, I realized this, that I was never going to be, be, become great. I'm never going to have a building named after me. Never going to be the object of a great piece of art or sculpture. Um, never going to write a best-selling book. The one book I wrote is actually my doctoral dissertation, and one copy sold. I bought it, and it's in my office. If you want to see it, you can come by. I can prove it. I'm an author, published author, one book. But you know what? It's okay. It's okay. Why? Because small things matter. The little things that comprise your life. That stuff's of great value. Time for a last story. Sorry to be just a little late, but you're going to find this story interesting. I've told it before to others, and they, they, they hear it, and they said, is that story true? I said, yes, you can check it out. This is a true story. You hope that every story a pastor tells, Mike, is true. But I'm just going to say this one is true. Elmer Bendiner was a gunner on a World War II flying fortress. Some of us know what those big planes look like that, that in the end of the war, toward the end of the war, were responsible for bombing Germany into submission. And so Ben Diner was a gunner aboard the ship, his gunship, affectionately called the Tondaleo, and it was on a bombing run over Castle Germany when it started to get hit with Nazi anti-aircraft fire from the ground. Now, that wasn't unusual, but this time, those 20-millimeter rounds found their mark. And as with horror, he and the rest of his crew could hear the thud, thud, thud of those, of those rounds hitting the plane, 
they became even more stricken with fear when they realized that a round had punctured the fuel tanks. Now, that was scary for a couple of reasons. First, the obvious is that they're going to run out of fuel and they can't get back to the airfield. But the other more frightening prospect is that the rounds that were being fired at them were designed with a little incendiary charge so that when they hit, they were supposed to have a little explosion, and the gunners liked to see if they could hit the fuel tank because one round hitting the fuel tank was usually sufficient to blow the plane out of the sky. But that didn't happen. The Tondaleo finished its mission, returned to the airfield, and much to the surprise of Elmer Bindiner and Captain Bonfox was that they learned that the fuel, uh, fuel tank had not only been hit by one round, but 11. 11 rounds, and where only one should have been sufficient to blow the plane up, 11 had not brought it down. Well, the armorers had extracted these rounds, the Army uh, air crew, and then because this was so unusual, Army intelligence was called in to examine why the rounds hadn't worked the way they were supposed to. And this is what they discovered. And Ben Diner said, ah, 35 years after the fact, this story was written in the early 80s, he said, it still just sends shivers up my spine when I realize he believes how lucky they were. He said, when Army intelligence examined the rounds, they found all 11 of the casings empty of that incendiary charge. All 11 empty, clean as a whistle, except for one. And he said, inside of one, they found a little scrolled up piece of paper. And on that piece of paper was handwritten in the Czech language, these words, words written by a Czech citizen forced by the Nazis to work in, an, in a munitions factory making those rounds. The words said this, it's just a little thing, it's all we can do for now. Just a little thing, it's all we can do for now. So you understand, right? When the German guards weren't looking, they made sure those rounds were going down the assembly line without that little charge in them made all the difference in the world. Christian author named Steve Sogern says something that I think is relevant to what we're talking about. He said, I long ago gave up the idea that I was ever going to do great things for God. Never going to be thought of in the same circles as Mother Teresa and for me, HMS Richards, true. <laughs> I'm never going to be on a big stage and have thousands of people come forward. But he said, it's okay, because I believe small things done regularly, done well, are really the stuff of the kingdom. Long before Pope Francis ever said it, Jesus practiced it and modeled it. The little things done well, those are acts of holiness. That's the, that's the work of Christ to others. You're his hands, you're his feet, you're his mouth, doing little things that matter. And every time you do something small, this coming week for Jesus, you and I doing something small, it's like laying bricks into building the kingdom. One brick on top of the other, one brick laid beside the other, little acts, little deeds. Phone call you can make, a card you can write, a prayer you can offer heavenward, a little compassion and love for someone you know is discouraged or carrying a heavy burden. Those little unspectacular things are the way that each of us can honor God, love others as we're commanded to, and build the kingdom of God. So this week, think about it, maybe even today. What's a little thing you can do? Something little you can do, something little I can do. And by that little thing, we will honor Jesus 
We will bless others, and indeed, we will build the kingdom. Lord, uh, your word reminds us, Zechariah 4.10 challenges us not to despise the day of small things. That's true even in our lives. Not only not to despise them, but to practice them. And those little things, the devil might suggest to us they don't matter, but indeed they do. Your word tells us that the ministry of Christ is composed of lots of little things that will make a difference for eternity. Help us to see that small thing, to do it well, and we pray that in so doing, we'll love others to the kingdom and be obedient to your call to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.